right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Langa podcast. Sally here. We're going to get to our interview with uh, Mike Wan here shortly, but got to tell you about a partner we've been dying to say something about. We can only talk about it. Uh, we've been embargoed until now. Rap Soto. So you may have seen some stuff come across DJ's Instagram. Uh, I don't know if I've put anything up there on mine just yet, but uh, we've been using these little devices from Rapsodo, the mobile launch monitors, MLMs as they call them. Uh, it's, it's super, super easy to use. It's extremely accurate. It gets within 2% of like the, the units that cost like $20,000, and this thing is not $20,000, let me tell you that. Uh, it automatically tracks your stats and stores video with Shot Tracer. It's helpful for you know club gapping issues and understanding the true distances that you hit each club. And what I love about the mobile launch monitor, it provides immediate feedback and data uh, and it creates just a better practice environment. You're not just mindlessly hitting balls. You can, you know, after you hit your ball, you turn and look at your phone screen and it shows you a replay of your swing and it shows you the ball flight and it shows you your ball speed, your launch, like all the things and, and your total yardage, all the things you need to know, uh, you know, want to get out of a practice session. It's extremely portable. It's about the size of a rangefinder. I just have it right on my bag, right next to my rangefinder there. You can use it both indoor and outdoor. You can use, use it with nets. So go to rapsodo.com forward slash NLU, that's R-A-P-S-O-D-O dot com forward slash NLU to get $50 off uh, a mobile launch monitor from Rapsodo. Again, rapsodo.com forward slash NLU for $50 off. Let's get to Mike Wan. So I know you've been through a lot of these uh, over the past couple uh, couple weeks, but uh, it was a four-year plan. You stayed 11. What made you stay that long? Uh, I fell in love. You know, I fell in love with the mission. I fell in love with the people. Uh, I believe in these athletes and the caddies. And I, I'm a father of three boys. I raised three boys. I never really worried about the future of any of the sports my boys played. I never, I never as, a, as an athlete myself growing up, I know my, a lot of players probably rolled their eyes if they heard my, me use my name as an athlete. But as an athlete growing up, I... Um, I never worried about the future of my sport. And then you, you know, you get involved in women's sports and you realize that these athletes don't take this for granted. It, it hasn't, it wasn't as good for their moms as it was for them. And it won't be as good for their kids if they don't leave it better. So it, um, it felt important. It felt, um, it felt worthwhile. And to be honest with you, I just, I felt like I, I've tried to leave a few times. I just felt like I couldn't until I got in a situation where I thought that the, um, that the slope was not, was nothing but up. Mm-hmm. Well, you were on in April um, when everything hit, and, and a lot has changed since then. You know, we weren't playing golf at that time, and there was just a big question mark as to what was, you know, what the future of that year, this year was going to, you know, entail, and what, you know, the future of the game was going to look like, and all of that things. But a lot has changed since then. So I kind of want to pick your brain, uh, and not and not focus just entirely on you moving on, but pick your brain on what the last year has been like, and kind of, you know, what what you were feeling back then, what sponsors were saying, were they panicking, were you guys panicking, and looking back. Do you think it went better or worse than you thought it would have as of maybe March or April? Yeah, there's a lot packed in that question. <laughs> I, I would tell you that the, the answer is yes to all of that. I mean, we went definitely went through a panic. I mean, I, I would be, I won't lie to you if my wife were sitting here and said I didn't, she'd uh, she'd call BS on that. I mean, yeah, April May was a panicky time. June July for me was high anxiety. We were coming back, but I certainly didn't want to be responsible for any uh, anybody or any or any company or any. Uh, location that worked so hard to get this virus under control. I didn't want to be. A, I didn't want to be a guy who didn't understand the bigger picture. 
and then it, it got all the way back to pure um, pure respect for my team and to watch my team take over this thing. And, you know, I was involved, but they were leading it, not me. Anybody who tells you otherwise is just trying to be nice to me because I'm leaving. But, I mean, the reality of it was my team took over, and I had a really great front row seat to watch this team that I built do what they do. Um, but, yeah, we went through a period of panic where, you know, none of our sponsors knew what was next, nor did we. I mean, I definitely had, you know, some – some high anxiety. And then as we got playing and uh, you just had to learn how to kind of work through it. I'm not, um, I'm gifted with a few skills that the Lord was nice enough to give me, but patience wasn't one. And I certainly wasn't built for 2020, but I, but I built the team around me that was, and and that was pretty gratifying. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like in reading and, and seeing some of your other interviews that, you know, this pandemic was, or what you saw out of your team during this uh, helped contribute to making this now being the time to move on. Is it safe to say that, you know, you, you just feel like things are in, in such better hands with the team that you have there that uh, almost like your, your work is done here? Yeah, I, I think every leader thinks they're building a good team, whether they are or they aren't, they think they are. You don't get the answer to that until you're really put under fire, you know, and, and uh, 2020 was the ultimate stress test. When you reach the stress test, you either have the team or wish you did. There's no building it once you get to that moment. To me, I wasn't expecting the ultimate stress test, but I got it. And I remember saying to my wife, it was probably about July. And I said, you know, I've struggled with when's the right time to leave, right? And she, and she said, yeah, obviously it's not going to be now. You know, we're in the middle of that. I said, it's sooner than you think because you know, I, I wouldn't want to leave anybody in a bad situation or you know, you just believe you're you know, more valuable than you are. And I can take my name out of that hat and still make the same statement. It was also, like I've said this many times, the worst year probably in LPJ history was also one of our most triumphant years. This was a great test to see how strong the LPGA really was. You know, I mean, we've we've been through some challenges in our 70-year history, and usually a, a solid recession or, or a major curveball can really stumble the LPGA. But we're back in 21 with a schedule that's bigger than we announced in 20. We actually added sponsors, and there were some pretty proud moments in 2020, not just the safety and the you know, and the, and the sanity of, of getting us through this. But we were actually growing in the middle of this, you know, in the middle of this fallback and, you know, not losing a, a staff member, a player, a caddy in the hospital, you know, never doing that to a local market. We visited it some, seemed like proof positive that, that this place was in good hands. And that's, I, I think that's what a leader is hired to do, not only help turn a ship around and get you going in the right direction, but make sure it can sail without you. And, but I saw it firsthand and it really, it really made leaving something I could get comfortable with. So what's it like to announce you're leaving but not actually leave? What have the last few weeks have been like and what <laughs> what's this, you know, time period gonna look like and, and also uh, you know, when is when do you think the date is gonna be? Yeah, it's funny. I'm not a big fan of uh, lame duck commissioners or leaders. So I mean I am not a fan of sort of announcing and staying, but there was when I first told my board chair uh, that I that this was a decision I made and we got through all the back and forth about and, and I think when she realized that, you know, this I wasn't trying to get more. I literally, you know, it was time. And uh, I said, there, I only have really one goal. And that is any member, tour player, caddy, sponsor, um, teacher, I just want them to hear it from me. So the risk of that is it's going to catch people off guard. And she said, I can live with that as long as you can commit to staying with us until we find the next one and help us select the next one. Because alternatively, I'd rather not tell anybody for a few months while we do some searching and then so it was kind of a compromise between the two of us. I wanted to make sure that no player called me and said, hey, hey, hey I heard a rumor. Uh, or some reporter called me and said, is it true? So we announced early, and then I agreed to stay through the through the transition of the next uh, commissioner. So it's uh, it's not my preference. I always tell people that, you know, 
uh, once you've announced, it's really never the same inside or outside the building. And I certainly don't want any long uh, goodbye tour, but I think it's the right way. One, I think my members got treated like the members they are, and it enables me to make sure and help our board, uh, not only with the selection process, but the onboarding process for the next commissioner. Let's just say, hypothetical for this question, that the next commissioner comes from outside the LPGA tour, maybe outside golf, whatever. Let's just say it's you know uh, somebody you need to you know kind of help the transition. What's what do your notes look like? What do you lead with? What do you what what do you need to pass on? What are the what does the next commissioner need to know about things that are ongoing or just about the job in general? This probably won't be my finest moment, but I have a different point of view about transitions. I mean, you know, when I took the job, they told me that the interim commissioner was willing to stay as much as six months. And I said, how about six days? And I wasn't being difficult. I wasn't being disrespectful. But I think when you walk in the building, you need to be the leader and you need to be the leader in the beginning. And people need to start coming to you with their problems and uh, as opposed to you eavesdropping on somebody else having a conversation. There's no faster way to learn how to swim than to get in the pool. And uh, so I've said the same thing. I'll stay if the new commissioner wants me to stay longer. But my guess is they'll just want me to be available. So, uh, you know, I'll walk through the people. I'll walk through the different boards you sit on and, you know, the and the missions of the different entities. But I think doing too much transition is actually bad for the new person. I don't want the new person to feel like they're adopting Mike Wan's plans. I want the new person to come in and look at 2021 and go, is this all you got? Come on, we can be better than this. Because that's the way I felt in 2009. I couldn't say it out loud, but that's the way I felt. I want the next one to feel like that, which is, hey, Mike, I've I've read the articles. That's nice. People like you, but we're better than this. That's the mentality I think we want to find for the next commissioner. So yeah, I'll take them through people. I'll take them through processes I've used. I'll take them through budgets that we've laid out. And then I'll encourage that person, male, female, wherever they're from, to not care about everything I just said. I mean, now you've heard my point of view. Now go create your own. Um, I walked into this building with um, probably 10 sure I was right ideas about the LPJ and about 100 days in, five of them were wrong. So, you know, you got to come in with your own ideas. So I'll be available, but, I, but I'm but i going to try hard to not be in the way sooner than later. I just think long transitions, uh, the only people that makes happy are board members who don't sit in the business. Um, long transitions just slow down the transition process. So I, I want it to be sooner than later. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. I'm going to ask you to brag on yourself a little bit with this next one. Uh, you've accomplished a lot in the last 11 years, but what are, what are you most proud of? I, I can read off the, the list I have here if you want, but I'm, I'm curious <laughs> to hear as to what, uh, you know, what, what was most meaningful to you? Yeah. I've said this in so many player meetings. I've said this in a ton of staff meetings, you know, 25, 30 years, and no one's going to sit down and talk about, you know, the founders cup or international crown or, you know, how Mike got purses from X to D or TV deals. And those are nice. And those are those are timely for articles today. But the reality of it is, you know, when people look back at the time, I always talk about the time we held the baton. I, I think this is one big relay race. And somebody put the baton in my hand in late 2009, and I'm going to put it in somebody else's hand in 2021. And people are going to say, like, what happened while they had the baton? And it's only going to matter if it's lasting. You know, purses and events, those are great. I'm proud of them. It was fun. Um, but what I'm most proud of the fact is this game is going to be more female than ever before over the next 30 years. And it doesn't matter if the next commissioner likes that or dislikes that. It's coming. We've built that. You know, when I joined, somebody asked me about the future of the game for women. And I thought, well, that's kind of a humorous question. The future of the game is playing. They're just junior golfers. Go look at them. And junior golfers looked exactly the same as senior golfers for 100 years. 15% women, 85% men, mostly white male men. If you jump forward to today... 38% of future golfers are women. There's only about a third of them are white male men. I mean, this game is going to look and feel different. It's going to look and feel more like uh, the rest of the world. And um, that's what I'm probably most excited about. I, I would say that when you ask that question, the two things that jump to mind is literally changing the 
face of the future of this game is something this team should take a lot of pride in. And the other is just the relationships. You know, not, nothing really matters at the end except except the people you meet and and work with along the way. And I can I can think I can leave this job 10, 11 years later saying almost everybody I worked with, I'd work with again. And I think they'd work with me. And along the way in 11 years, I'm not sure I would have believed I could ever say that when it was over. Because, you know, when you're in the middle of the grind and people are yelling at you and you're yelling at them, you're wondering, gosh, I wonder if I'm messing this thing up. But those people I yelled at and yelled back at me are some of my best friends today and will be no matter what my business card says. To that first point you made, what is, what does the LPGA Tour do specifically? You know, to that's I, I would consider that outside of the fabric of you know the 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 LPGA Tour. You know, just you guys put you know put on professional golf tournaments. That's very high level summary of everything you do. But how how did you change that that the fabric of you know the percentage rate of the people playing the game at a young age? Yeah, it's funny you say that. When I joined back in two thousand, beginning of two thousand ten, one of my strategies for the team is we called it nice three it was a three with a circle around it like you put on a birdie i don't get many of them but when i do the circle is the best part of writing it on the card so we had a strategy called nice three which meant we needed to make sure we built all three elements of the lpga we had tours at the time lpga and we had just taken over the symmetric tour now the let as well but we also had teachers about 1800 female professional teachers from all over the world we needed to grow that business i mean that was 1100 back then and then it was our foundation. And our foundation was primarily focused on a program called LPGA USGA Girls Golf. And, and that focus is to get young girls playing the game early in their lives in an all-girls environment. Um, at the time, we'd introduced about 5,000 girls um, a year to the, to the program. Now it's about 100,000 a year. So we've totally changed the future in terms of how many young girls are experiencing. That's just in the U.S., by the way. Um, and those stats about junior golf being more female are literally true all over the world, Thailand, China, Singapore, Australia, Japan. And so, um, you know, we believed by, by, by putting our emphasis on, by the way, every year, every player on the LPGA votes to put about $300,000 a year of their monies into the future of the game and the LPGA girls golf. USGA writes a big check to girls golf. Augusta National writes a big check to girls golf. Obviously, PGA Tour, PGA of America does the same. So, I feel like we got the rest of the industry as focused on the women's game as we were. And like I've always said, every accomplishment I've always achieved came with somebody bigger, stronger, and wealthier than me. And this is one where the bigger, stronger, and wealthier than me's all joined us in the initiative. And as a result, this game is going to be pretty female in the next 20 or 30 years. A quick break here to check in with our friends at Golf Blueprint. You can find their information at golfblueprint.com. You've heard us talk about this. A lot of people, you know, myself included, us included, you know, are not getting a lot out of your golf practice. You don't have a plan. You put too much emphasis on what, you know, just happened in a recent round. You might be misjudging the areas of your game that need work. Our friends at Golf Blueprint are here to help you with that. Uh, I know DJ and I have been grinding hard on these. Neil's got some new Blueprint cards he's been working on. I think we're actually going to get Tron working on some of these this year. I'm not going to pretend like Randy's going to be practicing. Uh, we've been down that route, and we know it doesn't happen. This program is for golfers of all levels. It's not top players. It's not high handicappers. Uh, they got their whole membership options. They really run the gamut here. So go to golfblueprint.com forward slash our dash members uh, for a lot of information about the membership, the infographics on how many, you know, what, how much certain handicap range players have improved and, and whatnot. It's a lot of information. It's algorithm based. And you're going to be really impressed with what, they, what these guys have put together to help you with your practice 
If you're looking to pass the time this winter, then go to golfblueprint.com forward slash join as we you want to hit the ground running come this spring. They'll give you plenty of stuff to work on while you're shut in indoors, you know, for several months here over the winter. So again, golfblueprint.com slash join. Let's get back to Mike Juan. What needs to change in the next 10 years on the LPJ Tour? If you were arriving at the LPJ Tour right now with a fresh start, um, you can replace yourself as a 45-year-old all over again. Uh, what, what would you change? What, would, what, what do you think, you know, if you're thinking of a real true long-term plan under your tenure for the next 10 years, what would that look like? Well, probably three things. I mean, first is we've got to, uh, we've got to move from just being a cable TV entertainment business to a network TV business as well. When I got here, we had one event on network TV. This year, we'll probably have 10. But in a perfect world, if we had 15 to 20 of our 34 events on network TV, there'd be a different dialogue about the LPGA. Our players would be worth more money, meaning Lexi Thompson's hat or Sho Young Yu's hat would be worth 10 times what it's worth today. Because showing up every weekend on CBS versus showing up every weekend on Golf Channel is a different price point for the sponsor. So, um, you know, I think we're a different sport when we start moving. We, we've got to have the base that we have with Golf Channel on the cable. TV networks we have in 190 countries, but in a perfect world, we would sprinkle that in with a, with a heavy dose of network TV. Haven't got there. Second thing is, I think you'll, I, I really do believe in the next 10 years, we'll see purse equality on our majors. If you ask, um, if you ask a thousand tennis fans, do men and women play for the same amount of money? A thousand of them would say yes. That's not really true. That's true four times a year, but those four times a year is when most fans pay attention to purse and size of event. If we got to the point where our majors were saying price point as the men, um, there'd be an equality feeling not only among the men who play the game, but among the young women who are joining the game. And I think we can get there. The last thing is I think we would be um, in a perfect world. I've, I've tried a little bit of this, but if I was staying for 10 more years, I'd be even more belligerent about it. We've got to be even more bold in moving the game forward in terms of pace and fun. So, uh, you know, to me, it's taken me 11 years to get my to get my group to really consider seriously range finders on the golf course you know for me i would never play around a golf without a range finder i'm not walking to a sprinkler head or a tree to figure out what the front of the green is and my players would never play around a golf without a range finder except four days a week thursday friday saturday and sunday not on a practice round not in a pro-am not on a qualifier not in a u.s open qualifier not on a symmetric tour event to me it's just funny the only time we decide to slow our game down and look at a book and write notes are the four days a week we're on TV. I think we can change that in time, but I'll use rangefinders as a good example of anything we can do to make the game faster and focused on the play and not the arithmetic is going to be good for the game. Well, I, I want to throw something at you here. I'm curious to pick your brain on this, and I, I've mentioned it a couple of times this year, and where I'm coming from on this is I truly enjoy watching LPGA Tour golf, yet frequently I find it going up against men's golf, going up against other sports. I don't know why they got rid of picture-in-picture picture on, on televisions, but I used to really enjoy <laughs> that feature, but uh, and I know you've got stakeholders and viewers all around the world, so it's not like the U.S. market is the only one you're trying to hit. But was there ever any thought given to alternative tournament dates? And I know it kind of is the kind of thing where you need every event and sponsor to buy into it, just the way weeks flow from week to week. But, you know, maybe it's a separate question for the COVID era, but a Friday Pro-Am rounds one and two Saturday, Sunday, and you finish, you know, tournaments on Monday and Tuesdays, maybe on the West coast, you're kind of hitting the East coast, uh, primetime windows. So again, it might be a two part question, you know, with no fans and no pro-ams there for a while. Was that ever a thought for this kind of COVID era? And why can't, why, why can't dates like that change? I'm sure there's reasons why, but you, this is the fun of having a commissioner on. I get to play commissioner for a day and you tell me why I'm wrong. The reality of it is you're not wrong, but to really get the right answer, you probably need to commit to this for multiple years, not multiple events. Nobody wants to hear this, but it's just true. 
a really great Wednesday. I mean, a really great Wednesday when I have five hours of live TV competing with nobody is so much worse than a really crappy Sunday in terms of TV viewership and fan attendance. It's just a reality. So any kind of ad agency or marketing expert that will look at me and say, hey, Mike, I tried this. And you're right. I got a lot of live windows on Wednesday. And I gave up a Sunday to do it. And I got half the viewers. Now, I, I killed it for a Wednesday sport because you're not really competing with much. But a really good Wednesday is still pretty bad. So, um, And here's the other reality, too, is when I'm playing, Three to six on the Golf Channel. While the while the uh, while the PGA Tour is three to six on CBS or NBC, my numbers are huge. The reason they're huge is you're watching golf. You've committed a few hours to it. You probably don't commit a lot of your life to it. But I mean, you're a bad example. But some of the people that watch golf, they go, "Hey, I'm going to watch golf right now." And let's face it, we've all got the clicker that makes us go back and forth. I get that back and forth for three hours, and that gives me hundreds of thousands of viewers that I wouldn't normally have when I've tried these Tuesday, Monday, Wednesday things where we really had success in some of these kind of off hour things, to be honest with you, with some of our international viewership. When we, when we finish on a Saturday night in Hawaii, it's Sunday morning in Korea and Japan and our numbers are through the roof in Korea and Japan because it's breakfast in Wimbledon for them watching us, you know, yeah, but the, um, so you're right. I mean, there's two things that have to happen. One, if I move one or two tournaments, then I got to move eight. When you start talking about moving eight tournaments, you have to bring them a better value, a better idea. They like it conceptually until they do their homework, and then they come back and go, Mike, I wouldn't mind playing these dates, but the price is lower, right? Like, you're not going to charge me the same for less viewers, are you? So um, when somebody asks me to lower the price, I'm usually done talking about that unique concept. So there, the, I will not be the next commissioner of the LPGA tour then based on this idea is what you're telling me. No, that makes sense. <laughs> Although I hope the next commissioner on the LPGA is willing to try those things because I would tell you in COVID times, we had the best Thursday, Friday ratings we've ever had. And if I could have moved more events in COVID to the weekdays, I would have. The problem we had with COVID times is by the time it hit us, we already had these golf courses and these TV contracts locked down for the 2020 time. So moving them in the middle of the year would have been more costly. And the last thing I was doing in 2020 was adding costs. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I hadn't really thought of the actual benefit of flipping back between channels more so than, you know, dedicating separate time to it. And I always try to, I mean, I think we always end up thinking of things through our lens in terms of golf fans. And it's hard for us to divide our attention between two events when both are going on at the same time. But the numbers don't lie. So I, I'll give you another good example. Like when we're in a playoff and the, and the PGA Tour is coming on and our, and our hours overlap or vice versa, they're in a playoff and working on And we go to split screen at Golf Channel or we go to split screen on network or they go back and forth. Um, the fans go crazy. They're upset because they either want to see the PGA Tour or they want to see our playoff. And they can't believe that we're sharing time together. Both tours are winning during that time because the demand for, for golf at the same location is actually higher and your viewership actually goes up. So we have to sort of say to the fans, gosh, I know that really stinks. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I hope this playoff lasts another three holes. I hope to keep going back and forth because my viewer, my, my sponsor is winning. And all the sponsors that are sponsoring what's on the player's bodies and bags and everything else are winning during that time. So even though the fan reaction is loud and, un and unhappy, the reality of it is it's actually working for the tour and for the players. Hmm. That is tremendous insight. Uh, so, all right, I, I'm, I'm hoping you can shoot me down here on the next part too then because, or give me kind of reasons <laughs> why, because uh, we love to dream up this stuff, but we don't actually have to execute it. But I've always thought the LPGA tour is ripe for, you know, doing things outside the box. European tour has done a great job with that, you know, miking up players stuff like that. What are, what are some of the challenges that come with 
thinking outside the box like that in such a you know a sponsor driven sport you know what 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 can LPGA Tour golf how can it differentiate itself and what in its television presentation product you know to really help it stand out yeah, I think you're right. You, I can't, I can't shoot you down on that because I think the more, I mean, I've said to the Golf Channel many times, "Let us be your incubator on the stuff you're thinking." Geez, I don't know. And our players have been really good about, like every player will be mic'd up. The reality of it is, a lot of our players who are super personal aren't real personal when they're playing golf, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm just saying the people that would never stop talking to me in player dining don't say a word when it's, you know, when it's Saturday and it's go time and they got to play the game the way they, the way they want to play the game. One of our challenges obviously is we don't have the wherewithal to put the same number of cameras at an event that the PGA tour normally does. So while you can watch 30 different people play golf on a Saturday, the PGA tour, you might only be able to watch 13 on the LPGA just in terms of the amount of coverage uh, that we have. But I mean, we've tried to uh, not only throw different approaches to televising it, but different events in, in general. I mean, our team event at Dow, you know, the International Crown is something that nobody ever can contact. I can't remember how many people have said to me in an airport, why don't you just play the Women's President's Cup? And I said, because you'd call it the Women's President's Cup. And I don't really need to see the U.S. versus rest of the world in women's golf. Like, we're we're past that. Countries want to play for their own flag, not make up a flag and, a, and an anthem and a color scheme. Uh, you know, it's a different animal when your flag is on your cheek and, you know, the ribbon in your hair is the color of your flag. So we created International Crown, you know, for that matter. And quite frankly... We created it because we thought the Olympic format, while great, uh, the Olympics is great, we really wish there was a team format as part of the Olympics as well. I wish there was a male-female Olympic format. I really am looking forward to when we get to the point where we have male-female events between the LPGA and the and the PGA. I think the fan could benefit by seeing golf played in different ways, just like they could play it in their home, home front. I think when people watch the Ryder Cup, you end up having all these clubs have Ryder Cup events. You know, I think... As people watch the International Crown, you can do similar things. And when we have mixed events, I think there'll be mixed events in clubs. So um, we can't kid ourselves that we're not a, you know, a living, breathing example that makes its way back to the to the regular club or pro shop. So um, yeah, we uh, we've got to continue to be um, to be willing to try different things. And you know, we were early with Mike Up. We were you know we were early. We we're the only traveling daycare I think in sports. You know, we're, we were early with retirement programs. Other sports might take them to the next level, but generally we're first there. Hmm. Well, I'm so glad you brought up mixed events. And I, I'm curious as to, you know, in your tenure, did this ever come up? Or did you ever get close? Is there any, you know, if you float that idea to the PGA Tour, does it get shot down immediately? What, what are all the reasons why that hasn't happened or can't happen or won't happen? Or do you think that's going to change in the next 10 years? It will definitely happen. It'll happen in the next couple of years, not in the next 10. I mean, we're, we're close. Uh, we're close on at least two significant ideas. One, one I think is really quite, um, quite large and would be really exciting in terms of what it would mean for men's and women's and countries and, you know, television world. And I think had we not had 2020 COVID, we'd probably be talking about it on the 2021 schedule. Hey, the biggest challenges are the things you're smart enough to figure out. I mean, first is, you know, Jay plays. 40 weeks a year. So when I say, Hey, I got a really cool idea. How do you feel about any time in August? It's like, yeah, August doesn't work. How about any time in September? Can't do September. So, you know, we find ourselves in those challenges. The second thing is, you know, I've had a ton of sponsors come to me and say, I want to do it, a men's and women's event. And, uh, and then you get into the detail, right? So if you're going to do a men's and women's event, very few CEOs would step to the podium and say, we're going to pay the women less than the men. So how much does the purse have to be to get quality guys to play? Probably eight and a half million. So now you're going to have to have an eight and a half million dollar women's purse. So we're at 17 million before you put in the three million of TV. Now we're at 20. Now we've got to go get a golf course and location. All of a sudden, a really cool 
ten million dollar PGA Tour idea, a really cool seven million dollar LPGA idea is a twenty five million dollar joint event. So it's the real reality of, of cost is is real and making sure somebody feels like they can get their money back for the bottom line. And then last, like I said, from, you know, is, is us just finding a time and a kind of event that our players, especially our top players, can get excited about and, and drive the TV number. But I'd say um, for the last, since 2016, and really got serious about it in 17, starting in 17, myself, Jay at the time, Tim, um, and John Padani, who was on my crew, really got together and said, let's figure this out. By late 18, early 19, we had a couple of concepts. And by the end of 19, we actually um, we actually have contractual agreements between the two of us on how to get it done. And now we just got to find the, the partner that wants to bring it to life. All that stuff I mentioned in the pregame is the hardest stuff to do. Once you're where the stage we are, finding a person to bring it to life is the easiest of the steps. So knowing that we've gone nine of the 10 yards, um, I, I think we're there. It's just a matter of when we come to the podium and tell you about it. Hmm. That is that's great. That's exciting news. I think that was the Victorian Open was it this past year that was the uh, the, yeah. the LPJ event that was woven in with uh, it was an Australian and European tour event. I forget how, how that was all sanctioned, but that was one yeah, of the Australian most Australian PGA, European PGA, us and the LET. So that's right. Was, uh, four different tours, men's, women's. This year we have two events. Um, we have one in Sweden together between the LET and the uh, European tour, and we have one that will announce. I guess about February 1st, so I probably should be careful. But we'll have one we're going to announce um, together between the LPGA and the Men's European Tour that'll take place this summer. So um, another dual event between men and women. And like I said, I'm pretty sure by this time next year, the LPGA and the PGA Tour will be talking about dual event between the two of us. So yeah, the men's women's thing, like I said, it's... Um, it's no longer a dream. It's a reality, and now it's going to pick up some of its own speed. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was it was on late at night, and you know, just Australian you know golf is on late at night here in the U.S. And the way those, I was just having an absolute blast watching those two events weave in and out. I almost kind of lost track that there was two different tournaments going on because, in reality, in my opinion, it's it's a lot to ask for a single golf tournament to deliver drama every week because just some weeks are not dramatic that's just how golf is but if you double your chances that you have some good action coming down coming down the stretch you know on the same golf course i think that is a great way to get people to tune in um and yeah that was that was a uh, a glowing brain moment i think when i when i started watching that just how that was presented on television was just just fantastic but um i remember a call on my team and saying for the practice rounds because i wasn't there and i said for the practice rounds have we been given adequate time for the players to get on the golf courses and how are they managing kind of when the men play and when the women play? And, and my, my head rules official said, what are you talking about? I mean, all the, all the practice rounds are next. Like people are just, you know, there's two guys and two girls or a guy and two girls. And they said, you know, they're, they're just totally playing together. And they said, everybody is interested in everybody else's practice routine, what they eat, the learning that was going on. It reminded me a little bit of Rio. You know, what was really cool about Rio is to walk in and see, you know, one of my players getting therapy next to a swimmer and the two of them are talking about like, how do you taper for a big event? I mean, I remember at Diamond Resorts, which is, you know, where we are this week, I remember Ray Allen talking to one of my run, young Korean players about how to keep your nerves under control when it's really, when it's really the final shot. And she came up to me later and said, who is that? And I said, that's Ray Allen. That guy's the guy who takes the final shot on every final game. So when he talks to you about nerve control, she turned right around, went right back and started talking again. So it's, you know, I think great athletes want to learn from other great athletes. And that happened at the Vic Open. Yeah. I mean, it's not just lip service when we say, you know, all the LPGA pro-ams and stuff we've played in on how much you learn about the game of golf from somebody who, you know, it's way, way, way easier and more relatable 
to you know how a how a top LPGA player swings the club compared to like the swing speed of a normal you know average you know player. Obviously, the skill is the gap is enormous, but how they build that gap, right? I can't watch PGA Tour players and say, "Oh, I need to just do it like that." You can watch LPGA Tour players and be like, "Oh." You know, they don't hit it really far, but you know what they're so good at? Their wedges, their mid-irons, their hybrids, all their shots from 170 to 190. They're just trying to score from that, you know, when they have hybrid in from those areas. And that was just eye-opening, you know, to, to you know, hit it. Sometimes I hit it pretty far. I hit it 50 yards past some LPGA players, and then they just smoke me. And, and that was eye-opening, I think. And uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it's just knowing – I'm sure that some of that exists at the pro level too of just how they spin their wedges or how they, you know, flight things and how they get after certain pins, a totally different way of thinking. It would be really refreshing for a lot of PGA Tour players and, and professional men to see. I think a lot of, you know, a lot of our sponsors, you know, man, I mean, I think about some of my friends that are now sponsors, they're, they're my age and they're golf fanatics like me, right? So if you ask me how far do you hit your driver, I'd say 275. I probably hit it 235, but I'm pretty convinced it's 275. But when you get out there and you're standing next to Stacey Lewis and she's 30 yards past you and it's all lined because you're seeing the actual yardage. I mean, I can see what it's on the driving hole and I can't tell you how many, you know, will come up to me and go, listen, Mike. Stacey Lewis is 115 pounds, maybe, you know, and she's 30 yards past me. I'm like, yeah, you, if you're standing on a par three at 175 and Bubba Watson tells you he's hitting a 58 degree, there's nothing you can grasp from that. But if Stacey Lewis is hitting it 30 yards past you and she's a hundred pounds less than you, you probably ought to take a little bit more of attention to pace and turn and, and tempo. So it's, um, yeah, there's, there's so much to like, I can't find any tee boxes. I'll stand on these programs and, I'll say to Christy Kerr, what do you got? She's like, six iron. I'll say, me too. And I'm thinking, hey, we pretty much play the same game. Um, And as you know, I mean, when you get to the final scorecard, you don't play the same game at all. But at least you played a round of golf with them. They're on your tee. They're, you know, they're they're relatable to what you're doing. It's uh, it's amazing how much better they are than you. But it is a game that you can relate to. I'll never be able to relate to how far Rory McIlroy hits a three-wood. I mean, that's his three-wood is a driver six iron for me. (laughs) Well, I want to have a little bit of fun with this next question. Uh, I, I, I'm guessing you maybe have never been asked this one before, but you, you're incredibly accessible to the players on the LPGA Tour, and I, maybe too accessible, I would say. Uh, with that in mind, what's the most <laughs> ridiculous thing that's been brought to your attention? Something that definitely shouldn't go straight to the commissioner, but people feel really comfortable with you and say, hey, Mike, you know the, the, uh, the soup is cold in the dining room or something like that. <laughs> Uh, well, I've definitely had my share of food comments. There's no doubt about that. I've definitely had my share of shuttle bus comments. And like, who was the, why did you order these shuttle buses? Like I literally wake up in the morning and think about the shuttle buses for, of course. I, um, uh, my wife finds this funny. Maybe a, maybe a commissioner should get this. But my wife, you know, when we have a rain delay, no matter where I am in the world, if I'm not at the golf course, I know it's a rain delay because my phone usually blows up. If you get 100 players stuck in a clubhouse for an hour, and get talking about something, whatever they don't like, they usually get in the lather about it. And I will get 80 text messages within five minutes and I'll go, oh, shoot, we're in a rain delay. Because how do you know? I said, I'm not exactly sure, but I don't get this many text messages on a Saturday. But I've definitely had my text message concerns about uh, pin placements. Um, you know, whose idea was the pin placement on 17? I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure it depresses them to think that I don't wake up in the morning and try to figure out if we're 17 on and six from the left. I mean, it's just it's not what I... Not, not what I do. I've, uh, I think the funniest thing I ever got is after a player meeting, um, my wife was with me at the tournament. We were at dinner, and I read my text and started laughing. And she goes, what's so funny? I said, a player just told me that that tie does not go with that suit. And uh, my wife goes, bullshit. And she grabbed the thing, and she goes, I can't believe she. And so from for about a year, my wife wouldn't let me leave without putting ties on my suits before I'd pack. 
because she was convinced that like, you know, I was going to be, you know, that was somehow letting the players down. I'm like, I'm pretty sure it was a joke, but she's right. The tie didn't match the suit. So players are comfortable enough to uh, take clothing shots at me. That's for sure. I, I forget if I asked you this when you were on this spring, but what did you learn about golf on TV from your time as a, as an on-course announcer? <laughs> uh, that it's work. You know, it was really fun for about 15 minutes. Uh, and then I realized, I mean, they're going to just keep coming to you like every, I mean, I, I found myself walking down the fairways talking to the caddies because I know them. And, you know, we're talking about sports or, you know, in that case, we're talking about Reynolds because I'm a, I live at Reynolds some of the year. And all of a sudden, I'd hear in my voice, you know, how far out is she? And I'm like, I don't know. I've been talking to this guy about Reynolds for the last 15 minutes. It was fun. I mean, I really, I really enjoyed it. It was, I'm not sure I was, uh, I'm not sure I'm built for that. But um, somebody, you know, uh, Jay Monahan and I were laughing back and forth because he wrote an article about me. And I'm like, geez, Jay, you're not only a good commissioner, but you're a good writer. And he goes, well, you're not just a good commissioner, you're a good commentator. I'm like, Jay, the job entails talking constantly. Who is better? He goes, yeah, you're right. You had a jump start on me on that one. So, I mean, if you, if any job that requires talking, I think, I'm, I think I'm pretty comfortable. Does golf on television look different in the future? Like what changes, if anything? And I, I don't mean to limit that just to LPGA Tour. You know, I, I, we're, you know we've, we we're trying to push some change on, on golf and television, trying to make it more exciting. And I'm just wondering if you see actual change coming and, and what that might look like. Uh, I, I don't know if this is a good analogy, and I don't know if everybody else, but to me, when, when Fox got involved with baseball, they brought a lot of technology to it. And at the time, as a baseball guy, I was watching going, hey, that's just too much. Like, I just want to watch it. Now I couldn't watch a game without that. You know, when, when Shot Tracer first came out, you know, it was nice in a couple of plays. But now I don't want to watch a, a round of golf without Shot Tracer. I mean, watching him in a finished position where I don't know where the ball is uh, isn't exciting anymore. I think that will come at hyper speed over the next 10 years. I think we'll know where the ball lands. We'll have quicker, we'll have quicker access to exactly how far they have. I think we'll know the history of how far they've hit the seven iron from a rough like this, you know, over the last 10 years, I think betting will push that envelope too, because with betting, you want to have more and more stats and data. I think because golf spends so much time on TV and I mean so much time, much more so than football, right? When you're on 16, two hour, two hour games a year as a football team, we're on 16 hours a week, every week on the LPGA. So we spend so much time on TV that technology will race itself to golf. And when it does, I think it will, we'll look back to how we watched golf in 2020 and go, man, that just, that wasn't much information. And it certainly wasn't, uh, it wasn't coming at me at the same speed. I think when you jump to 2030, you'll watch it like an analyst would watch golf because it'll be available to you as an analyst. There'll just be so much more technological advantages to the viewer, you know, that may be available to the player or the caddy today, but aren't really available to the viewer yet. You touched on gaming there and betting, and the, the PGA Tour seems to be really embracing the gambling aspect uh, of their tour, and that culture is becoming more and more mainstream across you know, pretty much all sports. So what's, what's the LPGA's strategy when it comes to gaming? How do you see that playing out uh, across the next decade? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're available to bet on in 2021, and we're in late 20. There's two parts of gaming. Number one is, so it is an interesting thing, 75% of sports betting comes from Asia. So a lot of times people in America look at me and go, oh, you know, Mike, you've just got, you've got so many Asian players and so much Asian following. Is that bad for your business? And, you know, I have to have in, in, a, in a sitting next to an airplane, I have to explain to somebody why that's a game changer for us in terms of revenue opportunities. If 75% of sports betting comes from Asia and women's golf in Asia is about as popular as any sport in the world, then I've got a huge opportunity in, uh, in the gambling front on three fronts, a viewer that doesn't usually pay attention to us, sponsors who don't usually pay attention to us, an opportunity for my players to be worth more money because of the first two. If more people are watching you and more, and more companies are engaged, 
then it actually then it stands to reason that what's on your bag is going to be worth more to you. So it would be um, it'd be irresponsible of me not to not to figure that out for the players because I think there's opportunity here for my members to have a greater audience and be worth more money, which is what what I'd like to give them. The, on the flip side of that, we've been woefully behind in terms of our ability to spend tens of million dollars a year to upgrade our our stat technology. With betting becoming a reality, I wish I could have put the cart before the horse and said, I'll just go invest all this money and I'll be ready for betting. I'm going to have to go have some success with betting and reinvest all that back into um, into technology that goes with it. It's a sad way to get there. I wish I could have done it the other way, but I'm, I'm not sitting on a mountain of money at the LPGA like some other sports are. But I think I can use the money that that will become available to betting to make the game better, more interesting to watch, and more valuable to the to the both the people who play it and to the sponsors who sponsor it. So um, yeah, it's definitely something I'm I'm chasing. I know I'm behind stat wise, but I'm way ahead in terms of uh, in terms of demand wise. So it's a nice place to be. Hmm. Yeah, I'd say. Well, you're you're an insightful guy, and I, I I have a I have a feeling you're going to probably turn this into a positive. But I do feel comfortable asking you. I, I wonder wonder kind of what were some of the lowlights of your tenure? What, what were things you struggled struggled with, or or low points, or things that you know? I'm sure you've come out the other end of a lot of them. But I'm curious what comes to mind in that. If I ask that, you know, I'm a Type A guy, so I mean, I remember all the bad stuff. My wife, my wife said to me one time over Christmas, "Why do you work so hard to have success when you celebrate it?" Such, in such a short-term increment because by the time Christmas is over, it's time for next year and you're into the grind again. It's just like, you know, if you're going to go this hard and announce a schedule and everybody says the schedule is great and the minute after you announce the schedule, you're struggling on on the next thing. Like, can't you just take a week? Um, but that's type A, right? You focus on the negative stuff. I can remember multiple, you know, multiple times in my life in, the, in this job thinking, you know, did I push too far? Did I miss the mark? We, we introduced the Founders Cup with no purse. I had a mock purse. Um, I didn't have enough money to put a purse on the event, but I knew I could get people playing and I knew we could make a difference for the future of the game. That was almost the shortest tenured commissioner in the history of sports when I announced that. Um, you know, we've, um, I remember being in the Bahamas and a hurricane hit on the Pro-Am night and we had 24 inches of, uh, of rain that night and, the, and the, the ocean wall broke. All the ocean ran onto the golf course. We had 12 playable holes. We turned one of the playable holes into a par three and we created the first tournament ever with 13 holes a day. Literally, my my players thought I'd completely, you know, I'd completely lost it. Like we were, and it was official, official money, official stats. But I had a brand new sponsor sitting next to me in that hotel, and he's like, "Mike, you're not telling me right that you're going to cash my check, and we're all going home. Like that, that's not an option, right? You're not going to tell me that." And I'd been that guy before. I'd been the check writer before, so I said, "Nope, I'm going to figure out something, and you're going to get four days of TV, and we're going to crown a champion." And I remember that night after I told him that there was a thing on, I think it was Instagram. It was Brittany Lincecum standing on the, on the bleachers we had built on 18 fishing on the 18th green. I mean, the 18th green was literally 10 feet underwater. And I remember thinking, how am I going to pull off what I just told that guy, you know, I'm going to do. I've made multiple, you know, p- public um, mistakes. I've, 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 I've made stupid mistakes in front of people I really respect. I've offended players I didn't mean to offend. I've fined more fathers than I have players in my 11 years, um, which is really kind of strange in a whole nother conversation. And I've, uh, you know, I haven't achieved everything I wanted to achieve, but, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't take away to your point. It doesn't take away from the positive experience. I, I thank goodness I had the guts to do this because I literally turned this job down twice, uh, back in 2009. When I got the first call, I said not interested and gave him another name. And then later when I got involved in the process and I got the offer, I sent a really long, heartfelt email, like I've, I've saved it, to the board saying, thanks, but no thanks. I just can't do this. Not now. I had young kids. I lived in California. 
And I just thought, I remember saying there's, there's never going to be a tombstone that says, here lies a great commissioner, husband and father. And, and I'll be the guy that says, here lies a great commissioner, the husband and father thing will get scratched out by my kids. So I just said, I just can't do it. So luckily I had a change of heart and I'm really glad that I, that I jumped off the cliff because I think my kids will be more likely to take a, take a leap when they're faced with a really difficult time and follow their passion as opposed to follow, follow their brain. Hopefully they learned a little something in this move. Hmm. You touched on it there and we may have, you know, kind of talked on, on, on some of these topics with mixed events or things like that. But what is an example of something you want to get done, but didn't? I didn't get range finders on tour, but I, <laughs> but I believe, believe I still have a shot. I got a couple of months to try to figure that out. Um, I didn't get to equal purses on at least one major. I thought I'd get to one major. I mean, I believed back in 2010, you know, the women's masters was a reality and it just took the right sales guy to keep asking. And so I think I asked seven years in a row, um, but, you know, didn't, you know, didn't get that sort of over the hump. And I didn't get to my goal of half of our events being on network TV in the States. I really believe half our, half our events being on network TV and we're a different sport. Um, and I'm most frustrated by the last one because that really could have been the game changer in terms of sport going to the next level, but we're, we're trending in that direction. I mean, I certainly think it's, it's not only, feasible all of those things are probably likely in the next 10 years well can you guess what uh i'm, I'm gonna i bet you can my last question on the way out is do you, do you can you guess what it's gonna be i've seen you've had to answer it a couple some, you've had to answer it a couple times go ahead, go ahead. can you guess uh, it? what's next <laughs> there's is that what's next yeah there's the op- well there's an opening oh, uh, there's an opening in uh in golf at the usga <laughs> Uh, I've heard your name floated for that. Uh, what, what do you have to say about that possibility? It's funny. So I told my parents literally two days before I told everybody else that I was leaving and my dad said, what are you going to go do? And I said, I don't know yet. And he goes, my gosh, Mike, you have to keep walking away from good jobs without having one. Cause this is the third time I've left the job without any place to go. And my oldest son heard him say that on a FaceTime call and he goes, I know grandpa, he's two for two, but he's pushing his, he's pushing the limit. And, um, so day or two later after we announced my dad sends me a note saying go online and google your name which is something only a father would do and i said why and he said because they've already figured out what your next job is they're they're writing about it so just go read about it and I, so i went on and googled my name and said okay i get it um i listen i don't i don't know you've only you know you've only interviewed me twice and you and i both know that culturally i may not really be a good fit for that job and uh and i'm aware of that and i'm sure they probably are too i'm not uh, i'm not in a hurry to find the next job and they may be um, and I really think uh, for me to be valuable to whoever, whoever, and where I go next, I need to kind of cleanse myself of this one so I can take a fresh look at the other one. What I don't want to do is leave here on Tuesday and Friday, somebody announces me, uh, somewhere else. And I, I might miss a few good opportunities in doing that. Um, I love this game. If I have an opportunity to stay in this game, I'm going to take that real serious, but I'm certainly not building out of bound stakes around golf. Um, you know, listen, I was a brand manager at Crest Toothpaste. I can get just as excited talking about tartar control as I can about dog legs. It's embarrassing, but that's true. So part of the excitement for me is I don't really know where the next big leap is going to be. If that turns out to be the next big leap, great. But that only because they want somebody as, as crazy as me. And, um, and I want, and I want that challenge, but we, we'd have to go through that exercise together. I appreciate people thinking about that as a, as a fit, but I just think that's people saying golf guy at a top position, golf company looking for a top position. I'm not really sure anybody really sits down and pluses the pluses and minuses and says, Geez, Mike wanted the head of the USJ. How scary would that be? Because they'd probably they'd probably get to that recognition pretty quickly. 
Yeah, I, I know. I've heard I've heard that conversation, and then you know heard that you know he's not a he's not a pure golf guy. He's not just a golf guy, and that seems to be you know. I don't know the rules of the game. <laughs> if you asked me for a ruling, I would call in one of our rules officials. Every time I hop on a golf cart that says rules, my rules officials get nervous. So um, I'm just being honest. That's you know you know to me when I'm playing golf, if I don't know the rule, I just drop one and hit it again. So uh, it's not uh, I'm not I'm not a born and raised. Uh, golf governance guy that's definitely true well i to that i would say though that might be what they need that you know that I, that would be a strategical decision from their end but uh you know the people that were dismissing that as you know he's not the the golf guy in, in that they're probably looking for i'd say maybe they're looking for something different so who knows who uh, i, I think knows? It, you effectively answered the question and it, it, it wasn't <laughs> uh that was a more detailed answer than i thought you would that you would give so i really greatly <laughs> appreciate that but uh, thank you a ton for you know all the contributions you've made over the years to this podcast and uh, for women's golf in general. And we've had a, a blast following it, and uh, we always have a great time chatting with you. And hope this isn't the last time, but congratulations on a on a great tenure, and uh, can't wait to see what's next for you. Thanks a lot for having me. It's the first time we've done it on FaceTime. At some point, explain to me the wallpaper on the ceiling plan. That is, uh, it's kind of a soundproofing thing in here. It's actually like a blanket of some kind. So we've got kind of soundproofing got stuff it. all around the house to help reduce the echo. But uh, that's that's what you get from a low-budget studio like we've got. So. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me. I appreciate you guys. And I appreciate what you guys do for the game. Cheers. Thanks, Mike. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah! Yeah! I mean, that's... Better than most. How about in? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect anything.